this past week I've received so many, you know, the last couple weeks, emails, texts from people saying that they're physically sick, unable to come this morning, and um, or they're com- we're coming back for the first time after being sick, and so there's physical exhaustion in our midst. There are people who are watching at home physically exhausted. There are people who are here that are exhausted from illness and sickness, and our numbers are depleted from sickness, and so we're coming in in many ways physically tired and exhausted, and now we're uh, reading a passage in Scripture that's extremely difficult to hear. We need prayer. We need prayer to believe and trust that God is good in the midst of reading things that um, oftentimes we really, really struggle and wrestle with. So we need to spend time in the text. We need the Spirit to, to soften our hearts to truth, to bring the kind of attention to this text that requires us to do introspection, spiritual examination of my heart, not of God's heart, as though he should be put on trial. But mine, what does this text say about me? This is how I want to approach it this morning. Let's pray that we would. Let's pray that the Spirit would show us what he has for us. So God, we pray this morning that this would be your word to our hearts, that your Spirit would work in such a way that we would see the truth, that we would come to trust, to trust you over ourselves, to trust you over... the the inclination of our sinful hearts. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would make truth known to us and that you would stir us to belief, to repentance and belief uh, by way of your word this morning. Make the gospel known to us. Make the cross known to us. As the church put it on full display in Jesus' name, amen. Another serious time in history. When, When Winston Churchill walked into the House Commons on June 4th, 1940, he knew that uh, not even a month into his time as prime minister, he was prime minister in early May, it hadn't quite yet been a month, and here he is needing to speak, maybe the most significant words he would ever speak in a public role. Like, the Allies had just pulled off the miracle of Dunkirk, you know, where, where hundreds of thousands of troops were rescued. If you, ever, if you ever watched Christopher Nolan's film about Dunkirk, you might mistakenly come to believe that there were like 12 people on the beach uh, boggles the mind a little bit. No, in reality, some 338,000 troops were rescued from a dire situation in France. But that victory, that miracle of Dunkirk, didn't feel like a victory for a few different reasons. First of all, it was seen as a victory because their church were, their, their, sorry, their, it was seen as a victory because their soldiers were rescued from certain defeat, not because they achieved some kind of military success. Secondly, the soldiers were only saved thanks to this like curious halt order that was given by the German command, a miscommunication of sorts. And so Churchill's looking at the situation. He's saying the Nazis are just days away from entering Paris. France is faltering, much to Churchill's dismay and disbelief. And so he knew that now he must prepare his people for the fall of France and the reality that German invasion in Britain is imminent. It's coming, you know. And this is where the House of Commons heard the, the infamous Fight Them on the Beaches speech on June 4th, the, 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 the day that, that Dunkirk was finished. It would go on to become the, the most famous words he ever would deliver. To Parliament, even though most people in the UK and in the US wouldn't actually hear the speech until after the war, it would have been recorded later on. Uh, typically, we're not hearing a recording of the actual speech. The words from the speech were reported by a newspaper, by the media, all over the world. The reaction was overwhelmingly positive. So in this three-part biography of 
of Churchill uh, called The Last Lion, William Manchester notes a number of different responses to Churchill's words here. His secretary wrote in his diary, went to the house to see the PM's statement on the evacuation of Dunkirk. It was a magnificent oration that obviously moved the house. Another member of parliament on the same day wrote a letter to his wife, and he said, this afternoon Winston made the finest speech I have ever heard in my life. Several members of parliament cried. The New York Times wrote of the speech, it took moral heroism to, take, to tell the story that Winston Churchill unfolded to the House of Commons yesterday. Its meaning will not be lost upon the British people or their enemies or upon those in the New World who know that the Allies today are fighting their own battle against barbarism. So, you know, this is a moving speech. Why was it so moving? You know, there were some, there were some who heard the speech and they thought this is depressing, right? Because it's detailing the reality that we've lost that the Allies have suffered these like embarrassing military defeats and that we're on the brink of invasion. So there's some who's like, this is going to cause another depression. But especially for listeners in the United States who arguably were Churchill's target with the speech and inspired uh, a different way of viewing the war. It was moving. He wanted to give, why was it moving? Because he wanted to give them a sense of what would be lost if the Nazis won the war. He wanted to, He wanted them to see that. He was stunned by the recent Allied military losses. Specifically, he couldn't believe that France, who, by the way, at the time had the largest land army in the world, high-quality aircraft and tanks, how could they possibly have lost so badly and so quickly, seemingly just rolling over for the Nazis? So he painted this picture of British resolve, a British fight that would uh, need to be mustered to overcome this potential Nazi rule. One biographer of Churchill puts it this way. He says he wanted to wake people to the dangers, wake people to the dangers of the reality that would be posed by a Nazi victory. And so Churchill draws this contrast in his speech. It's this contrast between the people under English rule and the people under Nazi rule. And he causes people to action at all costs. And finally, he speaks of this imminent coming threat that they were facing into. In other words, Churchill urges his people. He urges his people in this speech by way of a warning. He urges them to press forward, persevere, continue. But the way he urges is by a dire warning. Do you know what will be lost? Look at France, he essentially says. Look at how easily they rolled over. Look at how they acquiesced to uh, the Nazis. In fact, in, in the last line, Manchester talks about how the French ambassador was so ticked off by Churchill's speech that he wired the foreign office. And he said, uh, what exactly did Winston mean about Britain carrying on alone? And Churchill had them wire back immediately. It meant exactly what I said. Um, so here's Churchill saying, do you know what the world would look like if we all just did what France did and we just laid down? Do you know, therefore, how strong our response must be to the very last man? And here in Revelation, you know, we see the author urging God's people to persevere also by way of a warning. You know that period in history, 1940 to, to early 1941, it's often known as uh, the darkest hour of the war. That's, that's what it's often referred to, the darkest hour. And here in Revelation 14... I think we see the darkest chapter in the book of Revelation, arguably the darkest section in all of Scripture in many different respects that, in which the, the author urges with a warning. Many of the same kind of questions 
come up here. Do you know what would be lost, what your future, what your future would look like if you rejected the gospel for the embrace of the world? It's a real temptation, but do you know, you know, it's easier to do that. It's easier if you're France not to have to fight. It's easier to just allow tanks to roll in. In that moment, it's easier because you don't have to suffer casualties. You can just kind of acquiesce and give up. You don't have to fight to the last man. You can just embrace. Right? So do you know what would be lost, what your future would look like? If you did that, here, if you just acquiesced to the world, if you rejected the gospel for the world, if you said it's just easier to do that now, do you understand how serious of a judgment awaits you if you just roll over to the demands of Babylon, if you just roll over to the demands of the world, the way that sadly many in the first century were doing and many throughout history have continued to do, many churches in the West do today. Do you understand that siding with Babylon will be siding with those who face judgment for what they have done. That's what John is asking. What does that mean? Well, he tells us in three movements of the text, because what we also see in Revelation 14, similar to the speech that we just saw, is a contrast, first, between two future realities. Two peoples, two humanities, two future realities, and then a calling for Christians in the midst of those realities, and finally the coming Reality of future judgment for all who fail to heed John's words here. For all who, who hear it and maybe just push back on it and say, ah, it's just symbolism, it's not true, I'm not going to listen. Do you understand what would be lost, right? So, so John, John shares these three things, the contrast, the calling, the coming reality of judgment. He shares them for the purpose of urging us to persevere, to press on, urging us forward by way of warning. So let's look uh, together first at the contrast between two future realities. Set your eyes with me on verses 1 through 5 as you do that. Uh, let's just remember where we are from last week. John had this earthly vision, if you remember, uh, of the dragon identified as Satan, who in the chapter prior, in chapter 12, was cast out of God's presence. Now he's on the shore, you know, this earthly vision in chapter 13. And he, he cannot pour his wrath and fury out any longer on the Lord, so he sets his wrath and fury on mankind, specifically on God's people, summoning two beasts, the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth. Go back and listen to last week's text if you want more on that. I don't have time to sum up Revelation 13 right now. Um, but essentially, it's Satan raging against the people of God by those who seek to destroy the people of God and those who seek to deceive the people of God. That's the best summary I can give you. But this morning's text has an immediate shift of scenery. We go from this earthly vision of the dragon summoning these two beasts to draw people away from the Lord to now a heavenly vision of those who are actually not drawn away. Our eyes are focused now on those who weren't drawn away. We see a heavenly vision once again of this 144,000. Now we already read about John's first vision of the 144,000. We talked through this before in chapter 7 where we heard of the, you know, if you remember John heard the 144,000. And then he turns and he looks and he sees this great multitude from all tribes and peoples and languages. And we saw that this 144,000, I argued, is actually representative in Revelation of the entirety of the people of God. In fact, I argued that if you were to come up with a number to signify the complete people of God, 144,000 is pretty close to perfect in terms of the way that numbers, especially in apocalyptic literature, tend to function. 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 tribes of Israel. 
in the Old Testament, which already signify the complete people of God in a lot of ways throughout the, the scriptures. Uh, Twelve apostles, New Testament, times a thousand, this number that indicates perfection or completion. And you can go back, listen to chapter 7 if you want some reminders as to, to why I concluded that there. But if you remember, one argument that I gave in chapter 7 was, I said, I think you have to take 144,000 as the complete people of God if you're basing your reasons on what the text says and not importing an outside structure into the text. And the reason I, I said that, I said, my linchpin argument is what it says in chapter 14. So I punted forward. I said we'd get there, and here we are. So what does the text say about them here that I ultimately think, I think we had good reasons in chapter 7 to think that this is the complete people of God. What does the text say here that I think ultimately rules out a smaller specific number of believers, like a subset, subcategory of believers with this 144,000? Usually the argument is that this is a subset of Jewish martyrs, 144,000 being a somewhat literal phrase that he's kind of giving us an approximation of this number of Jewish martyrs that would come. Um, why is that ruled out here from my perspective other than the arguments I just gave? Well, when we look at what the text says about them, you know, not only do we get a better understanding of who these 144,000 are here in Revelation 14, but we get a better understanding of why the author is bringing them up here. Like, why is he, why is he referencing them again? Didn't he already talk about them in chapter 7? And so why are they reemerging in the story as it's unfolding here? What does the text say about them? So look back to verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We already saw that in chapter 7, but listen. So here's why we see this glimpse of the 144,000 again in chapter 14. All right. We just ended chapter 13 seeing John's vision of those who gave their ultimate allegiance, their worship, their service to the beast. And those people are marked on the foreheads with the number of his name. Remember that? Number of his name. And here now in chapter 14, we see that contrasted. It's setting up a contrast again. We see that contrasted with a different kind of vision in which we see people who have the Lamb's name and the Father's name written on their forehead. So chapter 13, a humanity with the number of the beast's name on their forehead. Chapter 14, a humanity with the Lamb's name and the Father's name written on their forehead. And the author will set up the contrast in these first five verses and then continue to point back to it throughout the rest of the chapter. But essentially what we see here is two humanities. Two humanities. One humanity belonging to the beast in chapter 13. One humanity belonging to God in chapter 14. And I've said it like a million times already, but again, it fits perfectly from within how apocalyptic literature operates. It's very black and white. Everybody has a mark. You're either, you either belong to the beast or you belong to God at the end of the day, Right? It reminds us of the terminology that Jesus would use when he would talk about the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff, right? So at the end of the day, it's very black and white in apocalyptic literature. It fits perfectly with that, but more importantly, it fits perfectly with the context. One question to ask yourself, if you think maybe this mark on the forehead of chapter 13, the mark of the beast, is a literal mark of the beast that people in the future will receive like a microchip or a tattoo or something, one question would be, just respectfully, do you think the mark in chapter 14 of the 144,000 is a literal mark? Or do you think the mark that the people of God receive in chapter 7 on the forehead, the seal of God, the mark on the forehead with his name, do you believe that to be a literal mark? Because if not, 
I want to suggest that it's an inconsistency with how we're interpreting the text. And that matters because this contrast, I would argue, is the point the author's trying to make. And it comes with enormous implications for Christians right now. Enormous implications. Everyone has a mark. You either have the beast's mark or God's mark. You either have, you either face the beast's wrath or God's wrath, right? So what happened in chapter 13? The people with the mark of God faced the beast's wrath. It was a, it was a, a chapter about persecution and deception that came upon the people of God while the people who are marked with the beast faced the beast's acceptance. Whose wrath would you rather have, right? Because now we get to chapter 14 and people who are marked with the beast's name receive God's wrath. Right? So there's kind of two questions fundamentally. And I've asked this one a number of times. Whose wrath would you rather face? But also, whose acceptance would you rather have? The acceptance of surrounding culture and the world or the acceptance of God through Jesus Christ? This is what gets posed to us so, so many times here as we read through this text. And now that we get to chapter 14, all that's actually placed side by side. That contrast is the point. So a heavenly vision, Mount Zion... With the Lamb, that's heavenly vision. Number 144,000, all with the mark of the Lamb and the Father on their foreheads. What are they doing? Verses 2 and 3. They're singing. They're singing. This imagery is meant to capture, right? This imagery of like harps. Voices like rushing water, right? It's meant to capture the loud proclamation of the song. The passion, the loud, the loud proclamation of all of the people of God collectively singing. What are they singing? A new song. Another reason why... I, I think we can say in the text here, this is the complete people of God. They're singing a new song. What does this imagery of, of a new song point us back to throughout the Old Testament? Like, as you read through the Psalms, as you read through certain sections of Scripture, you see the people of God singing a new song. When does that happen? It's when God intervenes with redemption. When people are redeemed, they sing a new song. Their heart brings about a new song. And so that's what's happening here. We're, the, these these 144,000, they're singing a new song. In fact, we know what song they're singing. If you remember the context in Revelation, we see the song of the redeemed in chapter 5. As the lamb who is worthy takes the scroll, and here in verse 3 we're told, so here they are, they're singing a new song. They're singing the song of the redeemed, and we're told in verse 3 that no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. Now you might disagree, and that's totally okay. We can disagree on Revelation 14, but to give you to give you my view here, I think this language comes pretty close to ruling out these 144,000 as some kind of a subset of believers rather than the complete people of God. Because here we see that they're the only ones who, who know the song of redemption. They've been redeemed from the earth and they're the only ones who know the song. And friends, for all eternity, all of those who place their trust in Christ, all of us here who've thrown ourselves on Christ's mercy... We know the song of redemption and we will be singing it forever in glory. This, this is a description of our future life with Christ for those who put their trust in him. And that will become clearer even in the next section. Now you might say, okay, Jeremy, but what about verses 4 and 5? That's a really good question. What about verses 4 and 5? How could this be the entirety of God's people and not a subset if these are virgins, right? They're described as virgins, Obviously, there are married Christians, right? There are pe people from within the people of God who are, who are married. Doesn't John call them first fruits? Like, the smaller group is raptured somehow, right? Or saved first, right? Because they're first fruits, isn't that right? And, and this is where I think I would agree with 
the majority of commentators in saying, most understandings of 144,000 that sees them as a subset, that rejects what I think are the stronger arguments in favor of these, these other ones, most of them argue on the basis of a misinterpretation of these two verses. The way that we arrive at the 144,000 being this like small group of people is a misinterpretation of verses 4 and 5 of chapter 14. And I think it's a pretty big disservice for us. For instance, this isn't saying that the 144,000 are men who stayed celibate. And I would argue that it can't be the case. It can't actually be the case for a number of reasons. First, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the entire Bible, and for good reason, do we see marriage or marital sex as defilement. It says that they defiled themselves. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they are virgins. They're pure, right? So, okay. Nowhere in the Bible do we see sexual relationship with a woman is defilement. Actually, quite the opposite. We see that marriage and singleness are both charismatic gifts from the Lord. They're both gifts from the Lord. And I've heard this text misused to make it seem like the Bible is saying that women in some sense are a defilement. Friends, it's just not what it says at all. It's not what this means. It's not what the Bible is teaching. The Bible teaches just the opposite. Second, and more important, well, relatedly, when you look across the scriptures, the reason it can't mean that is when you look across the scriptures, what you actually find is a consistent symbolic imagery of the people of God playing the harlot. The people of God running to other gods, putting other gods in the place of God over and over and over again. And that symbolism cuts both directions. In other words, it's symbolized by women defiling themselves with men, like Gomer, who goes to a different man after different man, defiling herself with, herself with different men other than her husband as a picture of our pursuit of false gods, and with men defiling themselves with women, drinking from false cisterns, and doing that instead of, it's a picture of humanity constantly turning to false gods, and yet God, the point is, God pursues the harlot. Throughout the scriptures, he comes for her. They become his people, and he grants them a new identity. A new identity. That's the idea, and I would argue that's the idea here as well. It'll get stronger as we go, but the 144,000 are those who are now redeemed of the Lord, and are therefore, they've turned away from false gods. They do not serve the beast. They're not part of the world system. And we'll see that specifically contrasted in just a, a few verses, if you don't believe me. Indeed, they are the first fruits. In the same way that James means when he writes, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, like, what's the context of Revelation? And this is what James means, by the way, when he says this. But what's the context of Revelation? What are we looking at throughout Revelation? What, what, what are we getting toward at the end? As, as this, this is culminating more and more toward the end? New creation. New creation. And ultimately, God's people are the first fruits of that new creation. He makes everything new, starting with you. Starting with his people. Finally, it says that in their mouth, in the mouth of the 144,000, no lie was found for they were blameless. This is a picture of all the people of God. This isn't a subset of people who never lied or sinned. If we're waiting in our eschatology for a subset of people who come that are blameless in the sense of sinless and who never spoke a lie, then we're going to be waiting forever because there's no people alive ever in history who are going to be able to do that on their own merit. No, the point is this. It's the same, again, it gets us back to this imagery of idolatry in the Old Testament writings in which to worship something that other than God is to lie and to tell a lie and to proclaim a lie. That's why Paul, when he's writing of humanity apart from Christ, 
warning uh, of the coming wrath of God in the same way that John does here. He says, humanity exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. That's what's happening here in Revelation 14 too. The redeemed are those who worship the one true God, who because of Christ's work no longer play the harlot, run to false gods faithlessly, because that's not who they are anymore. Who are they now? They are now blameless. They've been redeemed. They're not blameless because they're without sin. They're blameless because of the work of Christ. It's removed their guilt, and we'll come back to that in a little bit about what that means, because this text has some important things to tell us about how that happened. So here John starts by setting up this contrast, contrast between two future realities. Right in the last chapter and in the verses ahead, the reality of those who worship and serve the beast, they have his mark, they seek after his ways, they serve him, they worship him. But here we get this picture of the future glory of God's people gathered to celebrate their redemption for all eternity. They have God's mark. They're sealed with God's mark on their foreheads. They worship him, they serve him. They've been granted a new identity in him and we will want to sing that song for all eternity. We'll want to be in his presence for all eternity. But that now brings us to the call so we move from this contrast to the call for Christians in the midst of these realities. Okay, and we see this call through several angelic proclamations here, starting in verse 6. Then I saw an angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Okay, so the gospel is going out to all the earth. The gospel, the song of the redeemed, this, this gospel of what Christ has done for us is going out to all the earth here. And interestingly, it says it's being proclaimed to those who dwell on the earth. And this is where English translations can be confusing. Not necessarily fail us because this is actually a good translation of the text, but um, it, can, it can be confusing to not see in the original language because I've said before, as we go through Revelation, right, we're going we're gonna to see this term earth dwellers those who dwell on the earth. And, and anytime you see that, I've said it, every time John uses that word, it's shorthand for the enemies of God, for those who set themselves up against God as enemies, for those who would rather have the mountains crash down upon them than to be in the presence of the Lamb. Okay, that, those are the earth dwellers in Revelation. So now we see that the gospel goes out to those who dwell on the earth, and we, we think the gospel is going out to those earth dwellers, so it will obviously be rejected. But no, this is a different term, actually. It's not the same term that John uses when he's talking about those who set themselves up as God's enemies. It's merely talking about the gospel going out to all of the world. And so the gospel goes out, but it goes out with a warning. What's the warning? Verse 7, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. In other words, repent now for judgment is coming. Repent now for judgment is coming. That's a theme. It's going to continue through Revelation. We've already seen it. We'll see it continue. We'll have more to say about it even in our text this morning. But the angel is essentially calling people away from false worship. And one of the uh, implications of the gospel that he was proclaiming is that it'll pull you into true worship. God, by his grace and mercy, will bring you into true worship, right worship that we saw in verses 1 through 5. So that's what we see here. True worship. Worship the true God before it's too late. Turn away from false worship. Turn towards the true God before it's too late. Why would it be too late? Verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations 
drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. John says, many have been deceived by Babylon. Okay? What's Babylon? Who is Babylon? Babylon represents this world order that set itself up against God. Right? Jesus tells us in John's gospel account the world will give us trouble because the world hates Christ, hates his gospel, hates those who proclaim his gospel. Why? Because uh, the gospel assumes, to believe the gospel is, is to believe that you're in need of a savior, that you're a sinner, that you can't save yourself. But actually what you deserve is wrath, and that's hard for this world order to hear, that we're deserving of wrath, that we can't save ourselves Right? This is why, I mean, this is what Babylon symbolizes actually throughout the scripture. From the very beginning, we preached through Genesis, right? From the very beginning, the Tower of Babel, and that's, this is Babylon. Who, what is that? The Tower of Babel being those who decided that they had no need of God. They had no need of God. They could reach heaven on their own. So Babylon made the nations drink the wine of the passion, the text tells us, of her sexual immorality. Here we see the contrast again. God's people, the 144,000, they no longer play the harlot. They've been redeemed by God. Again, that, that's uh, symbolic of they no longer turn to false idols, right? And now we see the contrast because here it's the same thing. This isn't talking about literal uh, sexual immorality in verse 8, although that's certainly an implication of it. That happens. Uh, it flows out of this. But, but what it's talking about is spiritual infidelity, uh, Drinking the wine of Babylon is to go to other things than God for worship and ultimate fulfillment. See, the surrounding culture can so easily engulf us and say, here, drink, drink of my wine. It's good. You'll find enjoyment that God can't offer you here. Do you know that? You'll find enjoyment and passion and pleasure that God can't offer you. In fact, he, he withholds it. He's a, he's a cosmic killjoy who wants to withhold the happiness that you can have in these things, the fun, the excitement, all of that. Here, drink of my wine. You can find acceptance from the world. Drink of my wine. You no longer have the fear that the world will hate you because you'll have acceptance from us. Drink of our wine. Your eyes will be open and you will see. Did God really say, surely you will not die? Drink of my wine and enjoy. But what's the result of that? Verse 9 and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. And whoever receives the mark of its name... Just to be clear what we're talking about here, there are those who take Revelation 14 and from it conclude that, well, you know, um, judgment for those who reject Jesus is, in a sense, it's eternal, but it's eternal because you cease to exist eternally. It annihilates you. It's called annihilationism. So in other words, you won't go on forever. You will be judged in this moment. There'll be There'll be, um, as the text tells us here, fire and sulfur. Um, there'll be a, a period of judgment, and then this will annihilate you. And, you, and your judgment will be that you cease to exist. It's, it's, uh, it's, you're annihilated. And then they, they would say, look, the smoke of their torment, torment goes up forever and ever. In other words, they're gone. It's just like the cities that were destroyed in the Old Testament. I don't think so. <laughs> Actually, I think quite the opposite here in the text. It's, 
If we're going to be, I think, faithful to Revelation 14, and we read this, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, let's not leave out the next phrase. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and his image, they have no rest, day or night. What we are talking about in Revelation 14 is eternal conscious torment for those who reject Christ. Babylon handed you the wine saying and believing when they said it, that it was good wine. But they were actually handing you something else, something poisonous, something that would destroy you, something that would eat you alive from the inside out, and ultimately it would be a cup that would bring wrath and judgment. It says that the one who denies the gospel and, and lives for the, for the world will drink of, of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Okay, so in, in the ancient world, Wine was just used all the time and utilized all the time, right? Um, just very much a part of ancient Near East culture. But, but it, would be, it was considered to be shameful to have a, you know, a full glass of strong wine in the middle of the day and then return to work, right? And take a nap the rest of the day, right? So what they would do is, utilizing wine in the daytime, they would often dilute it. They'd cut it with water, Maybe a third wine with water or a tenth wine with water, depending on the hour of the day. Uh, or they would just drink it in full later on in the day. But the, the text here says that um, there will be no diluting God's wrath for those who reject Jesus. There will be no cutting of it. No dilution. It will be poured full strength into the cup of his anger. This is a real warning. And here's where we finally get to the reason that the author shares these re- realities. His target audience in all this actually isn't non-believers. Like, if you're here or you're a non-believer, you're a skeptic, you're not sure what you think about Jesus, absolutely this has direct implications for you, and we're going to talk about that. But actually, his, his primary target in writing this, he tells us, are Christians, those at least who claim to follow Christ. Verse 12, here in these things that he's just written is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and keep their faith in Jesus. Keep their faith who don't reject it, who don't, who don't see that wine poured and, and, and pushed in front of them and, from Babylon and take it, but who keep their faith in Christ, who persevere in their faith in Christ. Listen, we live in a time when deconstructing your faith is encouraged from within the walls of the church, and usually what is meant by deconstruction, regardless of what is said, experientially what you see as its fruits and as its results, is a rejection of Scripture for the embrace of the world wherever Scripture and what the world says collide. And, and what we hear is, it can be so easy to hear the world say, oh, just look at what the Bible says here. And by the way, Revelation 14 absolutely applies to this. Look at what the Bible says here in Revelation 14. Look at, look at what the tradition of men, Christian tradition, for the last 2,000 years across all three major branches of Christendom, by the way. Look at what they've all said about this passage for 2,000 years. Look at how hateful and bigoted this is, how mean and judgmental God is in the midst of this, we really need to move beyond this. right? We need to tear down the tradition and see that this is not what God really meant. It's not what he really said. And that cup gets pushed across the table to us, the wine of the passion of the culture's infidelity, and too many Christians not wanting to be seen a certain way, certainly being tired, tired of carrying the burden of being despised in surrounding culture, but also having their own struggles and wrestlings with how they view texts like this for sure. 
can decide to stop persevering in the gospel and start embracing the world. And that's what John is talking about. Whether we like it or not, that's what John is talking about. Their faith can be shipwrecked and demonstrate that they had no faith at all. And John says, hold on. Persevere. Keep your faith in Jesus. Persevere. Press forward. Don't let go. Satan is trying to draw you away. He's trying to draw you away. Your sinful heart is trying to pull you away. Fight it. Fight on the beaches. Fight on the landing grounds. Fight it in the fields and the streets. Fight in the hills. Never surrender. Keep going. Endure. Keep the commandments of God in your faith in Jesus. This is a plea attached to a warning. Verse 13. And so, so, so why should we keep going? I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for, the, for their deeds follow them. Keep pressing forward, for life is a fleeting moment. And then comes the end. Then comes eternity to follow it. And to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be with Him forever, forever. So we can face, you know, the world's wrath in this time, knowing that we won't face God's wrath for all eternity because we have the Son, we have Christ. We're reconciled to him. Or we can have it easy in this life. We can be comfortable in this life. We can have accolades in this very short life and therefore get what we deserve and really get what we desire, which is to be our own Lord and Savior for all eternity. But that's forever. But that's the contrast. So John John set up the contrast between two future realities. We'll see it come into sharper focus right now. Then he gave us the call of Christians in the midst of those realities to persevere, to endure in your faith. Keep going in your faith in Jesus Christ. And now we see, and the Jesus of the Bible, by the way, the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of our own making. Not, yeah, oh yeah, I still have faith in Jesus. It just looks very different from the Jesus that we see in the Scriptures. No, that's not what he's talking about. Faith in Jesus Christ as he's revealed on the pages of Scripture, as Jesus has revealed himself. Okay, now we see why it's so important. We see the coming reality of judgment. It's very hard, but let's read this together. Starting in verse 14. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the altar who has authority over the fire. And he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest from the earth, and threw it into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle. 1600 stadia. We, we see another way in which numbers are used in apocalyptic literature. I think it's four times four times ten times ten, right? Four times four times a hundred, essentially. This is uh, the four corners of the earth everywhere. There's blood everywhere. There's judgment everywhere. No one will escape judgment. No one will escape. So there are some who say there are actually two harvests here one for Christians represented in the grain harvest, Jesus drawing in true believers, harvesting true believers. One for non-believers, the grape harvest ending in wrath and judgment. I'm not sure. Maybe that's, maybe that's the case. But, I, but I, regardless of what you think, I think these two harvests are telling us two different things about the same judgment, for sure. They're telling us two different thing about, things about the coming judgment. First, with the grain harvest, the idea seems to be that the harvest is imminent. It could come at any point. 
Okay, he says, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. It's ready. Okay, so judgment is in it. It can happen at any point. But second, we see how horrible the judgment will be when it arrives. I think the other ones to tell us, first, it's imminent. It's coming. It's for sure. It's certain. Number two, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's terrible. The imagery that he uses is horrible. Like, okay, this is symbolic language. But we need to understand symbolic language is meant to tell us something about reality. And I think sometimes the temptation when we're reading through poetry or apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament or New Testament, we see language like this with symbolism, the temptation is to distance ourselves from it and say, yeah, yeah, but that's just symbolic. Like hellfire is just symbolic. Uh, this wine press of blood, this is just a symbol. This is, don't worry, this isn't real. No, worry. You know, this is, this is real. Just because it's symbolic doesn't mean it's not real. In other words, here's what it means. What kind of vision could the Spirit give John that would communicate even a small part of the horrors of the judgment when it finally arrives, which will, I guarantee, be worse than however we might imagine it? And all of that leads to the central theme of the passage. And all of that leads us to why this should be heavy for us to, to hear and to think about and to consider and to do introspection as we read this text. Why? Here's, here's, I think, the central theme. Christians must not give in to worldly pressure to abandon the gospel because we will be redeemed from ju- we will be redeemed, and judgment is near. Okay? Christians must not give in to worldly pressure to abandon the gospel because we will be redeemed and judgment is near. We must not give up our claim to Christ. We must persevere in our faith. But for all my skeptical and non-believing friends who are here with us, who are watching at home, This morning, the theme is throw yourselves on the mercies of Christ because his mercies are real and judgment is coming. Like, the God of the Bible is a good and loving and merciful God, and this text does not dispute that, it reinforces it. Because God is merciful, he's also just. A just judge, a merciful judge, must bring recompense on the guilty if we are honest with ourselves because those who are guilty have left victims in their wake. And how unjust and unloving is it to the victims of those who are guilty to let them go free, to not have recompense. Humanity has done this. We've left victims in our wake, all of us. Humanity is deserving of judgment. Humanity deserves to drink the cup of God's wrath, poured full strength. But here's what you need to know about the reality of God's goodness and kindness and mercy. God hasn't distanced himself from this cup. Like I could see how we might say, okay, so we've got this high and mighty, transcendent God, seeing that we deserve wrath and just kind of He's distanced from it. He just, yes, we deserve it. He pours that cup of wrath out on us. He would be just to do that, by the way. Pours that cup of wrath out on us, but he's just he's kind of far removed from it. I could see how we might conclude from that that God does not love those who he claimed as his people. But, in fact, God doesn't distance himself from the cup. He drank from it. John, in fact, has, has written about this cup before. When when Jesus, so the author of this book, Revelation, has written about the cup, the same cup that he's referencing here. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, right after Judas betrayed him, John chapter 18, one of his disciples, if you remember Peter, grabbed a knife and he cut off the ear of a Roman soldier. And do you remember, remember what Jesus said to him? Jesus rebukes Peter. 
And he says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In other words, he's saying, Jesus says to Peter, don't stop them from taking me. This is why I came. This is why I was born into the world. This is why I came for you. This is why I was born. I came to drink the cup of my Father's wrath. To drink the cup that we're reading about in Revelation 14. Poured out in full strength. So that those who might put their trust in me might drink instead of a cup of blessing. Might instead receive a cup of the marriage supper of the Lamb in the end. Might instead drink the cup that now proclaims the new covenant of my blood. When we gather together at the Lord's table. Jesus took the wrath of the Father for us that we might, through his strength and not our own, through his work and not our own, through his perseverance and not our own, now actually persevere, now actually have strength, now actually do work in proclaiming that gospel so that people who don't know him might believe and have life in him instead of judgment. I actually saw someone post something this week. I don't remember who said it. So, you know, reading Revelation as a church, I'm paraphrasing. Reading Revelation as a church it shouldn't cause us to build bigger bomb shelters. It should cause us to build bigger dinner tables to invite our non-believing friends over and tell them about Jesus. And I think that's reinforced whenever we read through these places in Scripture that show us what's on the line here. You know, I, I think it's very easy for believers to read about hell and judgment and have a spirit of like, yeah, they get what they deserve, finally. That is not what's meant by this text. We should read it with a trembling voice. Do you want to know why? Yes, it's what they deserve. But you know what else? It's what you deserve too. And but by the grace of God, that's what you would be receiving. And so what we give our lives to is a proclamation of that gospel that those who we know, who don't know Christ, might hear and believe and avoid the wrath to come, avoid drinking from the cup of Babylon being deceived by those who would want to draw them away and instead turn their lives to Jesus Christ. And so we need to proclaim this gospel to one another that we might be moved in that way. Revelation should stir us to evangelism. And we stir one another at the table when, when we come together and we proclaim the cup of the Father. The blood that should have been ours covering 1,600 stadia, all of the world, the blood that should have been ours was poured out instead by Christ that through faith in him we might have now life, a cup of blessing. And so we remind each other of this gospel together this morning. If you are a believer, this is a proclamation of what you believe Jesus has done for you by living the life you should have lived, dying the death you should have died, now being joined to you that you can have repentance and faith and believe in him and upon his name, that you can grow in him and have life in him that starts now and goes on for all eternity. And if you would say, that is my story, this meal is for you. If you're here and you're a skeptic, observe, ask questions about this because this proclaims what we're saying, saves you from your sin. Or believe upon his name right now and join us for your first communion. But together we now come, I invite you forward to take the elements and we will receive them together.